Please take your Bibles and open them to Romans chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is one in the pew rack in front of you. It is on page 951. Romans chapter 16. Just for the sake of context, I'm going to read from 17 through 27, and then we will do the second part in our closing message on this text. Romans 16, beginning in verse 17. This is God's Word. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greets you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So we said last week there are really five sections to this conclusion of the epistle of Paul to the Romans. I got this outline from reading a commentary by J. Alva McLean, and I think it's appropriate. It begins with a really a commendation, back when Paul talks about Phoebe or Phoebe and her gracious ministry to the body there and to him as a patron. And then there's that section of the many greetings that Paul gives to the people who are there in Rome. And then there's a very serious warning, a warning about division, a warning about those who would call individuals alongside to to grumble and complain about something or to, to teach a doctrine that is different than what the elders and the church members believed. And then there is a time for salutation, a little different than a greeting, meaning it's the people who were with Paul in Corinth when he wrote the letter, they give their greeting to the people. And then at the, the very end, when it all wraps up, there's a doxology. Now, we covered several of those last week and the week before, and so this week we're going to zero in really on those last two, on the salutation and on the doxology. And the salutation begins by naming somebody who will be very familiar to you. His name is Timothy. And I think we have to stop really right there because we must say something about Timothy. Uh, Timothy is probably the most well-known of all the people in that list, but I would argue that he's often well-known for really the wrong reason. Timothy gets a, a bad rap. Timothy is often seen in his perpetual youth in our minds. He's this young guy. He's sort of like uh, Paul's intern. 
he, he's sort of going through seminary. He's just getting ready to go into ministry. He's kind of fearful and timid, and, and Paul's always trying to prop him up and, and tell him to be strong. He's got these youthful lust problems. He, he's got maybe some sexual desires he's got to bring under control. He's, maybe he gets angry. Uh, maybe he has sort of a propensity to be impatient. Paul says, take a little wine in order to help your stomach. And so we picture him as kind of this teetotaler with like digestive problems. And it doesn't paint a very good picture of Timothy. Listen, Timothy was a strong, courageous leader. Timothy was not the kind of person that could be sent into a mission, the likes of which Paul sent him on, if he did not have the capacity to handle it. Paul put tremendous confidence in Timothy. And I'm going to explain that for two reasons. One is where he sent him, and the second is what he did with him in terms of the writing of the New Testament. So first of all, where he sent him. Timothy is the one who was left behind in Thessalonica after riots broke out because of Paul's preaching. So Paul is preaching the gospel for three weeks in Thessalonica. Now where did he go? It wasn't to the local church in Thessalonica. It was to the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue. And since Paul was a rabbi, he was able to preach in the synagogue. He had the credentials. He had the pass. But can you imagine, you go to your Jewish synagogue, and this well-known rabbi who had been taught under Gamaliel, so he had a PhD from like the best schools, he shows up, and he goes to preach in the synagogue, and he opens up the scrolls, and he says, by the way, all of these prophecies that we're talking about today were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the man from Nazareth that you Jews crucified. That's not a way to get invited back. And so he went and preached wherever he could until they threw him out or tried to kill him. And that's what happened in Thessalonica. The whole place became an uproar. It got so bad that Paul had to flee for his life. And Timothy is told to stay. How would you like that assignment? Paul says, listen, Tim, it's getting bad here. It looks like, I mean, I could end up getting killed. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to go. Um, but I'd like you to stay. Now, it wasn't because he was a coward. He wasn't sending Timothy there to do it for him. He was saying, Timothy, you stay. You shepherd the people that have put their faith in Christ. You have the courage to be in this place, even though there's a riot going on, and I want you to teach the gospel faithfully. And if it costs you your life, it costs you your life, but that's what we signed up for. Another city where Paul sent him was the city of Corinth, and we all know what the city of Corinth was like. This was not exactly a model church. I mean, if you don't like difficult ministry posts, you don't go to Corinth. I mean, if you are afraid of people who are evil, if you are afraid of people who are divisive, if you like to be liked, you don't go to Corinth. And yet Timothy was sent there to put that church straight, to take the words that Paul had written in the letters, and there were four letters, by the way, written to the Corinthians. We know we have two of them that were inspired. But he says, you bring that message to them and you hold them accountable to what I've told you. That is a tough assignment. That's a tough church. But Timothy went there to do that. Thirdly was the church in Philippi. Now that was a sweet church, but Paul sends him there because I want you to get an update on how things are going in Macedonia. I want you to pastor those people, care for that church I love so much. Bring me back a positive report because I'm just heartbroken as I look around at the condition of the churches. And the final assignment is that Timothy was sent 
to the city of Ephesus. And there he was put in charge of the flagship church in Asia at that time. It was the, probably the largest, most influential church that had been planted in the first century. And he was sent there to pastor those people, to teach them right doctrine, to fight off the false teachers. The letter to Ephesus doesn't really say it's to the Ephesians. We have that written into our English translation. It was a circular letter that went to all the churches in the region around Ephesus. And so Timothy would go and he would preach the gospel to all those churches, sort of be the overseer of multiple churches with great influence. Historians believe that the city of Ephesus is where John the Apostle ended up living out the rest of his years. And as you know from the crucifixion account that John the Apostle had with him a very special house guest, namely Mary, the mother of Jesus. So it is not unreasonable to think that Timothy may have been pastoring in the church where the Apostle John himself was active and one of his church members was Mary, the mother of Jesus. I mean, you talk about having to work hard not to play favorites and be a man-pleaser. But Timothy was able to do this within the context of ministry. Now, that's just where he served. Let's think about what he did in terms of the writing. Timothy, some people think, co-authored many of the New Testament books. You see that because Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, your brother or my true son in the faith. Now, what we don't mean by that is that Timothy literally shared the writing with Paul and that they were both responsible for it. But, but he says, like, I'm writing this together with Timothy. We're, we're here doing this ministry together. And so Timothy either received, delivered, or read, because of his time with Paul, almost every letter that Paul wrote. And so if you go through at the end of the the Gospels and Acts, he would have read, or received, or hand-delivered Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, which were written to him in Ephesus, and Philemon. Now that leaves only one left. Which one did I miss? Titus. And no doubt when Paul wrote Titus in Ephesus, Timothy was with him, and I'm sure that Timothy would have read that letter. I'm sure that Paul didn't write the letter, and Timothy's looking over, and he's saying, what's that? And Paul says, it's a letter to Titus. Mind your own business. I'm sure when that was done, he said, can I read it too? So Timothy would have been heavily influenced, not only by all of the New Testament writing, but don't forget that in 2 Timothy, we learn that he was raised by a godly mother and grandmother who taught him the Scriptures. What were the Scriptures when Timothy was a little boy? It was the whole Old Covenant, the Old Testament. So here is a man growing up with knowledge of the Old Testament and then watching the New Testament be written, serving in some of the most influential New Testament churches, a man utterly committed to the Word of God and to the preaching of it, willing as an adult to be circumcised by Paul so that he could minister effectively to those Jews. And then, as tradition tells us, at 80 years of age, stood up to stop the wicked parade that was going through Ephesus to celebrate the goddess Diana, and the people wouldn't stop, and they trampled the 80-year-old man, tied him up, dragged him through the streets, and then stoned him to death in about 93 AD. 
Here's a man who from the beginning until the end showed nothing but courage and conviction. He is not some weak little guy with stomach troubles. And yet Paul, modeling the kind of humility that he expects from the people around him, describes him, notice in your text, as what? It's his co-worker. But the people would have known. Now, not only Timothy is mentioned, but also another group of people. There's three of them there. Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater. Now, honestly, we don't know anything about Lucius or Jason. The name was common. Uh, The first name is a Latin name, so he might be in Rome. The second name is a Greek name, but that's all we know. He may be the same Jason that was a host to Paul in the book of Acts, but we don't know. And so I'm not going to go beyond what I can tell you with all honesty. I'm not going to try to say something that's not there. I, I, I don't know. It's not essential to understanding the text. But these were also faithful brothers. Now, the other one is Sosipater. Now, um, we don't know much about Sosipater, but what I can tell you is this. If you're looking for a child name, um, and you don't want a name that everyone else has, Sosipater might be a way to go. I mean, that way, if you're out there on the schoolyard, you got to call you know, Sosipater. He can't come back and say, oh, I didn't know you meant me, mom. I thought it was, you know, the other guy's mom calling. No. Sosipater. Can't wait for a child dedication some Sunday where I get to say, and now you, let me introduce you. <laughs> but we don't really know anything about him. Now, the next name mentioned there is Tertius, and I, I gave you a translation that's a little bit more accurate in your bulletin, so you can look at that. Um, Tertius was the one who, who wrote the letter, but he says, I greet you, Tertius, who wrote this letter in the Lord. And I, and I think translators, and we're going to talk about uh, a little bit about translations here very soon. Um, Translators are always a bit concerned about communicating something and and confusing people. And I guess they didn't like the idea of saying that he wrote the letter in the Lord. People are going to think, well, what was that? Some kind of mystical experience? Like, did he go into a trance? What does that mean? No, here's what it means. He, He wrote the letter as a believer in the Lord. He's another person in the Lord. Just like all those people that were greeted in the earlier part of 16 were greeted in the Lord. And so Tertius is just saying, I'm not just some hired gun. I'm not just a guy that happened to be known for doing good handwriting in the area and and stenography, and so Paul hired me to write this down. No, I, I am one of you. How many times in ministry today, I'm this is a tangent, warning, which I just I can't help it. How many times today in ministry, in churches, these huge production churches, do they say, I don't care if the person's a believer or not. They're the best singer, the best guitar player, the best whatever, and we're just going to bring them in because all we care about is the quality of production. It doesn't matter if they're part of us or not, a member of our church. It doesn't matter if they're even a believer because we just want the very best. You know, Paul didn't have that attitude at all. Paul said, if you're going to be involved with me in ministry, you're going to be one of us. You're going to know. You're going to believe. If you do ministry with people who are not believers, they can actually undermine what you're doing. you got to have people, if they're in positions of authority and responsibility, representing the church and the body, they have to be held to that high standard of integrity, of biblical knowledge, of Christian character. I, I saw this played out when I was doing some ministry in China, we would take together house church pastors and we would go to a place in Hong Kong where we could do ministry with them under 
uh, without being under the watchful eye of the Chinese government. And, and whenever we did that, we would have a translator, obviously, because my Mandarin isn't very good. But we would always have a translator who said he was a Christian that we hired, and then we would hire a second translator to translate the translator. Because we wanted somebody else in the room who could, who could tell what he was translating to see if he was being faithful. And one year we had to fire the translator the first day because the translator was taking what I was teaching and twisting it around to something else. If you cannot trust the people around you in this ministry, like Paul with this Tertius or, or with a good translator, then you run the risk of having it twisted and distorted. So when he says, I wrote this in the Lord, he means I'm one of you. I'm one of you. So the next one, verse 23, is Gaius. And Gaius is the one who not only was a minister to Paul, he came alongside him, he was a co-worker, but he was also a host and the church met in his home. So here's a man who obviously had enough means to provide for Paul to meet his needs practically, but also to meet the needs of a whole church. Now, how did the church work back then? The church in his home. That sounds so noble. It's kind of a thing these days to get away from these churches and start meeting in homes again like they did in the good old days. Just meet in homes and have a little home church. You can gather together. You can have brunch, watch something on the internet, home church. Is that what we're celebrating here? Well, not really. Let me explain to you how this works. Churches and the way that they gathered have gone through different phases throughout all of church history. True enough, at the beginning, churches did meet in homes. But it's not like the church met in the home. It's more like the home was reconfigured to be a church. In those days, you often had an inner courtyard in your home. And what you would do is you would have your place of business in there. Or if you had a two-story home, your place of business would be underneath your living space. That's where your workshop was, and you would live above it. So it was either a courtyard, and all your windows, by the way, faced inward for security reasons, or it was a two-story and you could meet underneath. And so what happened is the early church, when they would begin to gather, which was, by the way, every day, as we've said before, always for communion, the Lord's Supper, a love feast, a meal together, always either before the workday began or after it ended so that all the slaves could participate, they would do that in homes. And they did that all the way up until about 1313 when the emperor Constantine made Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. At that point, all kinds of public money began flowing into building what are called basilicas. And basilicas were built in a very specific way. They were large rectangles or sometimes a, a cruciform shape, which means they were the shape of a cross. And what's very interesting is that they were built in this way. You would begin by entering it from the east or from the, the west. You would come in from the, the west, the building itself, you would be looking east. And you would come in from the west through what was called an atrium. It was a large gathering area outside. And then you would come into a, a, a narrow, low, dark area without any windows called a narthex. And then you would move through the narthex into what is called the nave. The nave was a large center aisle where all of the church would gather. And then if you move further, at the end of that nave, uh, there was an area at the top called the bima sometimes, and this was a place where either the altar was in the early church 
Or, after the Reformation, it would have been a table for the Lord's Supper and a pulpit for preaching. Now, before we move on to the next kind, I just have to say it's quite interesting to me as I was thinking about that, because this building was designed, the lower part, in 1963. It was designed and built around 1963. And then the area at the back, the, the, the balcony area, was an add-on in the mid-80s. But now when you begin to look at our church, it is kind of built that way. We have sort of a, a large gathering area where you can have coffee. You know, it's kind of like an atrium. You move into our lobby. There's no windows in there. It's kind of low ceiling, a little bit dark. It's kind of a narthex. And then you move into this area, and it's meant to be flooded with natural light, which is where the windows come from. They were usually stained glass in those churches. And you're to come in from a low ceiling into a high ceiling. You're, you're, to, you're to come in from kind of the low to the high, from the, the imminent to the transcendent, from the common to the, the supernatural, as it were, to, to sort of just appreciate the fact that you are gathered together in a sacred place for the worship of God. And the nave here, that, that center aisle right here in the middle, these two rows of pews where all the godly people sit, this is where <laughs> the people would gather. And then you come up to where that bema is, where that, that place of the, the preaching of God's Word, the celebration of the Lord's table. And I don't know if the architects thought about that as they built this church. They might have. If they didn't, it was quite coincidental. And I was out here this morning with my phone looking at my compass. Do you realize that this is pointing absolutely due west? Have you ever wondered why our building is so oddly positioned on our lot? You take a Google Maps look at it and it's all like, why would they build it that way? This is why everyone drives by us on Emerald and no one knows we're here. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they did it. So it was pointing directly west coming in there and directly east this way. I don't know. Maybe some of you who have been around for a while can help me understand that. Anyway. Those were basilicas, and then after that you got into really what were called cathedrals. And this is really important because when the Roman Catholic Church took over their prominency, they took all of those funds that were funneling through the Roman Empire, and they began to build gigantic, these gigantic cathedrals. And they filled them with all kinds of hardware, all kinds of statues, all kinds of stained glass windows, all this... Um, all these decorations, they became very gothic in their archways, gothic in their buttresses, gothic in the gargoyles that would be on the outside of the building. And, and what used to be just an elevated platform for preaching now became something that was completely blocked off by a rail or by a wall. And what it was meant to tell you was, you stay down there, the priests are up here. And the altar was brought up here. And it was meant to provide this great distinction between the people and the preachers or the priests. And what you had was this growing sense of separation, like we're just the people down here and the important people up there are the priests and what they're doing. And then you come into the time of the Reformation and the reformers came into those very same buildings and they began turning them over, like Jesus turning over the tables in the temple. And they got rid of all of that Christian clutter, all of that hardware. They put it down in the Christian bookstore down the street with all the fridge magnets and the mugs and the... Anyway. They said, get rid of all this stuff. And I want you to lower the stage down. We're working on a stage remodel, by the way, and the stage is lowering down. Why? Because it's too high. They were down where they could talk to people. They brought it right down where they could look at the people in their church in the eye. They could actually talk to the people in the first two rows, see them. 
And they say, we don't need to have an altar because we're not crucifying Christ again. Get rid of the altar and instead put a table, a simple table, celebrating the fact that when we gather together, it's for the Lord's Supper, His finished work. It's a memorial. Do this in remembrance of me. A great conversation this, this week. I think it was with you, Andrew. We were talking about that. You know, he says, remember me. And what do we remember him for? We remember him not for putting heavy burdens on us. He doesn't say, remember me, all the laws I gave you. Remember me, all the burdens I put on you. Remember me, all the expectations I placed on you. Remember me, all the judgment you felt. Remember me, all the condemnation I poured out on you. Remember me, all the guilt you felt after you were in my presence. No, he says, remember me, the author and finisher of your faith, the one who comes to you in humility and grace, the one who doesn't crush the smoldering wick or crush the bruised reed, the one who, as we sung today, joins you in the midst of the whirlwind and the torrents and the floods, the one who never leaves your side, remember me, remember me. And so that, that, that table often had inscribed on it in remembrance of me. And then, depending on whether you were Lutheran or you were from Calvin's tradition, there would be a pulpit. And, and Luther, when he came in to clean up the, the cathedrals, he, he liked to have a pulpit way up in the corner. So the preacher would walk up a spiral staircase and the preacher would, would preach that way. And, and that doesn't mean he was trying to say the preacher's above everyone. He was just trying to emphasize the transcendence of the Word of God. That it, that it is to be looked up to very, very literally. Calvin had a different idea. Calvin said, you know what, this isn't necessary. I just want to teach the Bible to the people. So he came right down and Calvin would preach at the same level as where everyone was sitting. And he did that in order to communicate the imminence of God. He is among us, and He teaches us through His Word and through the indwelling of His Spirit. So I'm a bit more Calvinistic in that way, and lots of other ways. But in that way, down, I like to be able to just be where we can bring the pulpit down and be able to teach and show the imminence, the closeness of the Lord through His Word. Well, after that, you go into the New World, and that's when the Puritans came over here on the Mayflower, and they started to build churches, but those churches were just meeting houses. They were great big boxes that were used for other purposes, had almost no furniture, had almost no decorations. They were just a place where people could gather. They would sit on benches. They weren't even pews, by the way. you think these pews might be hard to sit in for too long. Imagine a bench with no back. I mean, you can't sleep at all. I mean, you would just be flat out. You'd be lying in the row behind you. And they would preach from a very simple wooden pulpit. And they would celebrate the Lord's table together, the meeting house. So from the, the home church to the basilica to the cathedral to the Reformation experiments as they changed that around to the meeting house in America. That's how the church has changed. And so ultimately, it doesn't matter what kind of building you're in. What really matters is the fact that you're gathering in the Lord to bring an offering of praise to Him as those who realize that they have been blood-bought by the Savior of all who put their faith in Him. Hear that gospel preached, and the Reformers were concerned about two things, the gospel and the ordinances, meaning we need to make sure we get the gospel right, and we need to get baptism in the Lord's Supper right. Everything else is just structure and decoration. 
Well, with that, we can move on to the next individual, and that is Erastus. He is said here to be the city treasurer. Again, there's not much we know more about him than that. He's the city treasurer. He was somebody who was in a position of authority, somebody who was well-known in uh, the city there. And by the way, the city is, is Corinth. Remember, Paul is talking about the people with him in Corinth. So he was the Corinthian city treasurer. Side note, can you be a Christian and be in government? Yes or no? Yes. Now, you might think our government would be almost impossible to be a Christian. Like, how could I be a Christian in, 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 in our government? Well, I, I can't say this for sure, but I imagine that the government in Corinth was a little worse than ours. I mean, ours is not good. And we fund a lot of really ungodly things with tax money. But can you imagine being the city treasurer in Corinth? Imagine writing those checks every month supporting all kinds of idolatry, all kinds of wickedness, all kinds of licentiousness. Can you be in government and be a believer? Well, the answer is yes. And you just pray by God's grace that he preserves you and protects you and uses you for his glory. Not because you're going to transform the world through government, but because government will be at least withheld somewhat from their absolute exercise of depravity through your influence, Lord willing. And so that's what this man was. And the last person mentioned there is Quartus. Quartus just means fourth. So it could be that his parents were not very creative in names. It's like after a while, you know, you have so many kids, you're like, uh, like, I don't know, fourth. How would you like that? I'd like you to meet fourth. Some of you come from large families, you know. And this is fifth and sixth and seventh. And the rest we've stopped, we can't remember. His name just means fourth. And so this is the group of men that have positioned themselves around Paul to, to help him at the work in Corinth, and he is sending their greetings over to the church in Rome. They all greet them. Now, verse 24 is probably not in some of your translations. Now, I have to, how do you preach on something that's not there? So, this affords me an opportunity to give you a very brief explanation. So, go ahead, take a look at your Bible. I know some of you are curious. There's really only three options. Option number one, you've got a King James Bible, and the verse is listed there with with no notes. Uh, Number two, you've got maybe a New American Standard Bible, and it's there maybe in brackets with a note. Or you've got an ESV translation, and it's not even there. It just goes from 23 to 25. What does this mean? What this means is that manuscripts were discovered that are better than the ones that were known back at the time of the publication of the King James Bible. And those better manuscripts prove through what's called textual criticism. And by the way, that's not criticizing the authenticity of the teaching. It's not criticizing God or inspiration. It's, it's looking at the duplication transmission of the physical text that there are better manuscripts showing that those verses weren't there. So what you have is if you go back into the 1500s, and we we talked about this in our class on church history, is that you have the completion of the Greek New Testament by Erasmus. And Erasmus completed that Greek New Testament with the best manuscripts he had, and that's what Luther used to translate the Bible into German, the, the language of the people. Now since the 1500s, when that edition of the New Testament was written, compiled, better manuscripts were discovered. And so what you did is you had this large 
library, a portfolio of manuscripts, sometimes the same text in, in five or six different editions. And as a rule, you go back and you try to find the oldest copy because you figure that's going to be closest to the original. And then you compare all the copies. And it's a very intense process. There are people who have dedicated their lives to this study. But you realize that there are some outliers. You know, one copy of the text that just has these extra verses written in, sometimes even in the margins. And so what happened is the King James Bible, which was begun translation in the early 1600s, completed, as you know, in 1611, that one was using these older manuscripts. The, the newer translations use the newer manuscripts. And so I would imagine in this church, there are probably four Bible translations represented. The King James Bible, which was based on those older manuscripts, which is why these verses are in it. The um, NIV, uh, updated in recently, probably the NIV 1984 edition is what probably most of you uh, grew up on if you had the NIV. The uh, New American Standard Bible, which was, uh, goes all the way back to 1901, the American Standard Bible, and then 1977, 1995, they have a 2020 version, and um, Legacy Standard Bible is a, a version of that. And then you've got the ESV, and the ESV is really just a, an updated version of the Revised Standard Version. That's probably what's in the room here. And if you look down, you'll see it. There are notes there. And, and you can go back into various scriptures. I think there are 22 of them. And you'll see this note. Uh, you'll see this note, for example, in Mark's, uh, in John 7, 53, down, the way, down through John 8, 11, the story of the woman caught in adultery. Every translation is going to say that it probably doesn't belong in the text there. It was a story that had shown up in a bunch of different versions of the New Testament. You're also going to see at the end of Mark, from Mark 16, verse 8 onward, it should be in your Bible marked out as saying that this is not in the better manuscripts. Now, I don't in any way want to undermine your confidence in God's Word. God's Word is inspired, inerrant, absolutely truthful, and dependable in every respect. We say that applies to the, what's called the original autographs, the original writings of this text. So this in no way undermines our confidence in the Scriptures. In fact, every single example of a verse that is questionable has no bearing whatsoever on the meaning of the passage or on any doctrine that we hold. It is usually a scribe who is trying to improve the text or a scribe who inadvertently repeated the same line twice. Now, I bring that up because in my version of the Scriptures here, verse 24 is not there. In fact, it's missing completely. And so, I thought it would be helpful for me at least to mention why. And for those of you who do have it in your Bible, now you know why. Now, this brings us to the final point in our message here, and that is the doxology. The doxology begins in verse 25 and goes all the way down through verse 27. And it begins here with Paul saying that he wants to give God the glory at the end of this majestic epistle because it is through this glorious gospel that he is able to strengthen and establish you, to make your feet firmly planted. This is what is able to make it so you're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. When it says here to establish you, it means God has the power through his word to make you firm in your footing. And he does that through three specific ways. And they all say according to. I broke it down in your bulletin so you can see how the verse would sort of break apart. 
According to, according to, according to. What is this according to? How does he strengthen you? Why do we glorify God for his strengthening power? Because number one, it is through the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are strengthened when the gospel is preached. Every week when we gather together, it's to hear the gospel. And the gospel is not ask Jesus into your heart. The gospel is the good news that comes as a result of the bad news that as a result of God's holiness and His perfect law, every person is in an absolutely dire situation and facing righteous condemnation because of their sin, their sin nature and their sin behavior. But the good news is that in His mercy and grace, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, that He might be truly God, truly man, that he might die for the sins of men and women, bear in his body and by shedding his blood all of the punishment and pay for all of the sin for all of those who would ever believe. And that he rose again to demonstrate the fact that he had been victorious over sin and death and hell and then ascended to go back into the very holy of holies in the presence of the Father and waits there as the high priest did in the Old Testament after having made a complete sacrifice to then come out in victorious triumph and return. That is what we await. The triumphal entry is yet to come. The triumphal return is yet to come when he will judge the living and the dead. But the preaching of that gospel is what strengthens you. The second is the revealing of the mystery, Paul says. It's revealed through the scriptures. What's a mystery? A mystery is something that wasn't known but now is known. It wasn't known in the Old Testament. They weren't aware of it. The Old Covenant believers didn't fully understand it. But the New Covenant believers do. Jesus enlightened their eyes to him as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. On the road to Emmaus, he walks with the disciples and he unpacks it for them. Mile after mile after mile going through the Old Testament scripture saying, I'm the fulfillment of everything that was prophesied there. It's like they say he was preaching to us and our hearts were just overwhelmed by this reality. I never saw that before. That's the revelation that we're talking about of the mystery. That's what strengthens you. You begin to realize this is not some New Testament phenomenon. This is not some new religion. This is something that goes all the way back to the very beginning. It's part of biblical theology. It's part of an understanding of the arc of redemptive history. It goes back to creation and the fall and redemption and consummation in the end when all things are made right again. When we gather together again as resurrected embodied people to enjoy the presence of our king on a new earth forever. You love the earth now? Can't believe what it's going to be like later. You love things today? Just imagine what it's going to be like later. Everything you enjoy today is a microscopic foretaste of what is to come. You enjoy food now? Wait till the new earth. Now listen, it's not just the gospel and it's not just the revelation of the mystery. It's also the command of a holy God. By his command, by his decree, you are strengthened by the fact that before the foundation of the world, you were chosen, you were elect, and as a result of your election, you were justified by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. You were sanctified, set apart once and for all. 
You were, in the eyes of God, glorified, meaning that He already sees you as glorified in the same way that the glorified Christ is seen. All you need to await is the evacuation of this tent so that it can turn to dust and you can be reclothed in something glorious when all that is death is swallowed up by life, 2 Corinthians 5. And that's all part of the command and decree of God. And it's all for one reason, the strengthening. According to the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, according to the command of God, God the Son, God the Spirit, God the Father, a Trinitarian plan to bring you to what? What does it say at the end? The obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. What is that? Well, we have to understand that faith here is something that is given to us. It's a gift. It doesn't say that you obey and therefore you have faith. It doesn't say you do these good works and clean yourself up and then you have faith. It doesn't say obey all of these laws and all of these rules and then you'll be made right with God. It's an obedience of faith. It's a fruit of faith. Now, there's a wonderful book called The Lord Our Righteousness, written by a guy named Obadiah Grew. You got to read it just because it was written by a guy named Obadiah Grew. He was a Puritan author, died in 1689. But in this marvelous little book, he talks about what Paul is saying when he discusses the obedience of faith, and it's in a chapter entitled, The Sinner's Part in Making Christ's Righteousness His Own. Because there is that question, right? How does that relate to me? And I want to help answer that today. So, Gru says this, you have to understand that there are two things at work when it comes to faith. There is the object of your faith, and there is the act of faith. Okay, can you remember that? The object of faith and the act of faith. The object of faith is who? Christ. Put your faith in Christ. Faith is directed towards Christ. He is the only one. We were watching this clip this, this week of a great little story that Alistair Begg makes up in a sermon where he sort of imaginarily depicts what it's like for the thief on the cross to stand before you know, this sort of fictitious idea of, you know, getting into heaven, and how he has really nothing to claim except that Jesus said he could be there. He, he knew nothing else. And, and when you say to people, you know, what would you say to God today if he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? You know, sort of an evangelistic little shtick that goes like that. And, and, and if you say, I, anything, then you're completely missing the point. It's not about anything you have done. It's about what he has done. He did it. He purchased it. He drew me in. He saved me. He secured me. He sanctified me. He will bring me close to his side. He will preserve me until the end. In him is my confidence and my assurance. Amen? That's the focus. So the object of faith, first of all, is Christ. Secondly, the act of faith. The act of faith. And, and, and Gru distinguishes between two things, and I found it so helpful. I hope this is helpful to you. He talks about the act of faith and the habit of faith. The act of faith and the habit of faith. The act of faith is the faith God gave to you, Ephesians chapter 2, that you exercise in belief in the gospel. Okay? You hear the word of God preached, you hear the gospel, and you believe. 
That is how you are saved. You won't go through steps to get you believe. And because of your belief and your, regener- and your regeneration and the faith that God gives you, you can then repent, you can then follow, you can do everything that comes after that. You can obey. But that's the act of faith. The act of faith takes the thing that God ordained before the foundation of the world and applies it to your situation. You always knew that I would have faith. You always knew I would believe. You purchased that for me. You made me able to believe. And now, at this moment, I believe. That's the act of faith. And it's in Christ. Does it end there? No. Because after that comes, then, the habit of faith. Exercising constant faith in God. And, 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 and Gru summarizes it this way, and he actually quotes the passage here in Romans chapter 16. And I think it's helpful because I know for many of us, we wonder, well, well what about my, my ongoing sanctification, my, my ongoing pursuit of holiness? How, how do I understand that? Because I, I know that God saved me, and I know that he set me apart permanently forever, and I know he's going to glorify me, but, but how do I live my daily life? Do I just throw off everything and say, hey, I live however I want because I'm saved? No, we're not antinomian in that respect. So there must be something that works in us constantly to move us from, as Paul says, faith to faith. And, and here's the way he describes it. I think it's very helpful. He says, Neither does faith justify, even as it acts and works by love. Justifying faith does not act by love, but it does not, uh, does act by love, but it does not justify because it acts thus, nor as it acts and works in obedience. Meaning, he says, you you don't have faith because you love or because you obey, but because you have faith, you're able to love and you're able to obey. He says, faith does not act thus, as it is described, and therefore it is called the obedience of faith in Romans 16, 26. It was by faith that Enoch walked with God. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed the commandment of God in going out of his own country, not knowing where he went. And it was by faith that he offered up Isaac when he was commanded to do so by God. But these were not justifying acts of faith. These are indeed the natural and necessary effects of justifying faith. Faith, if it has not works, is dead, James 2.17, and I will show you my faith by my works, but these acts of faith don't justify us. So you're justified by the act of faith in Christ, and then you demonstrate that you are justified, and you are sanctified by your ongoing works that prove your faith. The act and the habit. All of this builds into the doxology. That's why he praises God. That's why he is overwhelmed as he thinks back over all that he has written in the book of Romans about the darkness of man's condition, about the hope that we have in faith alone, even Abraham long before the giving of the law, in the promise that Gentiles would be grafted in, in all the practical applications from chapter 12 verse on. And then as he wraps it all up, he says, then to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. 
Only a wise God could have put this together. Only an infinitely wise God could have ordained these things from before the foundation of the world. And therefore to Him be all the glory forever and ever through Jesus Christ. And then He and all of the Romans and all of us can say together, Amen. Amen. May He add His blessing to the reading and the preaching and the understanding and the obeying of His Word. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for this magnificent truth. Oh God, I pray that in Your kind mercy, even today, You might draw those whom You have chosen before the foundation of the world to the act of faith where You apply to them the righteousness of Christ, and their sin is imputed to you, and they might rejoice and say, you can have it, and go away from here justified. And for those who are already justified, anchor their assurance to the finished work of Christ, looking to Him and Him alone as the author and finisher of our faith. 